this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome to this week's episode our regular contributor, the lovely representative Emily Kornheiser, who has probably actually gotten sleep in the past couple days, which must be so exciting. Hi, Olga. It's very good to see you. I feel like a game show host when you describe me as lovely. (laughs) And I have the legislature wrapped up just 48 hours ago. And I am a little confused about what reality is, but very, very happy to be here. I know it must be weird outside the Montpelier bubble. It is a little weird. There's a lot of flowers and birds. It's amazing. Well, that's exciting. Well, I also have to welcome to the show Kevin Chu from the Vermont Futures Project. He is the executive director and very excited to be talking about data and the economy. Very happy to have you here today, Kevin. Thank you, Olga. I really appreciate being on the show and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yes, just for uh, the sake of listeners, when I invited Kevin or asked Kevin if he'd be interested on coming on the show, I said, we get really geeky. And I think that might have been the selling point for you. If I see the word geek or nerd, I'm in. (laughs) Well, Kevin, tell us a little bit. A lot of people don't know what the Vermont Futures Project does. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work. Sure. So the Vermont Futures Project is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization focused on economic research and education. That, that's the short snippet. That, that was a really good elevator pitch. I'm impressed. I want more words. What do you actually do? What does it look like? Sure. So we are focused on answering a mission question, which is how can we use data to support the evolution of Vermont's economy towards a thriving future full of opportunity for all. So the way we pursue this mission question right now, the big project is to develop um, an economic action plan for the state of Vermont. We have a climate action plan, there's a Vermont technology plan, there's an outdoor recreation plan, there's a plan for almost everything except the economy. So we feel that this gap that we've identified, the lack of an economic plan, is how we want to try to answer our mission question right now. Emily and I, we've talked about the lack of some planning in Vermont, especially around the economy. Mm-hmm. So for you, how long have you been with the Vermont Futures Project? I've been with the Futures Project for about a year and a half now, mm-hmm. but it feels like I've been with the project for, for much longer. It's been such a great fit. I grew up in Vermont and I look forward to growing old here too. <laughs> and I feel like the life experiences that I've had leading up to joining the Futures Project certainly inform how I think about the work. I am the son of immigrants. My parents came to Vermont, of all places, back in 1986. I have an aunt who had married an American, and they had a home in Shelburne at the time. That's that's how we ended up here. Oh, wow. My parents, neither of them spoke English, neither of them had a college degree, and they landed here in Vermont, sort of in, in pursuit of the American dream, seeking economic opportunity, that opportunity for mobility, economic mobility, social mobility. And I try to honor that brave decision that they made to just leave behind everything they knew to come here. So through the work of the Futures Project, 
I, I mentioned that part of the mission question is a thriving future full of opportunity for all. So I think about my, my parents when I try to answer that question, not opportunity for some or most, mm -hmm. but truly for all. That Thank is you. such an interesting perspective to come into this work with, because I feel like, or I've seen a lot of folks that I know who have moved to Vermont from other places in the U.S., they are not moving to Vermont in search of economic opportunity. They're certainly coming to Vermont in search of something else, and they're sort of willing to give up economic opportunity in order to live in Vermont. And when I made the decision to stay here, I've felt multiple times as if I was willing to give up give up economic opportunity in order to have community opportunity or social opportunity or clean air opportunity or even like mm -hmm. political freedom opportunity. But so I the idea of economic opportunity here as like a specific goal that someone might seek out, I think is really interesting, especially in the context of how many new Americans we have been moving here lately. That's right. And to add a little bit more depth to the story. So I grew up in Burlington during a really special time when there was an influx of immigrants and refugees from really all over the world. I went to Burlington High School pre-Macy's. It's important to distinguish the era. <laughs> and I, I think back to the experiences that I had outside of the classroom and the amazing perspectives of people coming from all over the world. And economic opportunity was certainly part of that story of why people landed here in Vermont. And I, I think about my soccer team senior year at Burlington High School. We had an 18-person roster, nine different countries represented. Just not, not your typical Vermont story, but such an amazing community to be in. And oftentimes, teammates that I had, you know, if they had conflicts with practices because they they were working to help their family pay rent, and because they they sort of had this dream that they were pursuing, and they were willing to put in the extra hours, put in the extra work to to make that dream come true. Mm -hmm. We've certainly talked on this show about the the kind of old trope in Vermont, you know, moonlight in Vermont or starve, you know, what do you call a Vermonter with fewer than three jobs? Lazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've heard mm -hmm. all those, those stories, but they're not really stories that we want people to keep living with. No. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about there's sort of the trope of the affordability gap, but really most of it is a wage gap yes. um, compared to other states in the area. And I do think that in the context of sort of the political story or the legislative story, I think we often like can't release ourselves from that like real Vermonters have three jobs story in order to say like we actually deserve better and can create something better for folks. Mm -hmm. I'd want to come back to Emily, what you had been saying about the idea that Sometimes people will come to Vermont through domestic migration and choose Vermont while willing to give up something economically. And I, I think that's also an important part of the work that we do with the Vermont Futures Project is try to dispel the zero-sum myth as if you can only choose the environment or the economy or equity when really a thriving future for Vermont includes all of those things. And 
to understand where people are coming from and sort of where they're trying to get to, they may be coming from a different perspective, whether it's an economically driven perspective, an environmentally driven perspective, an equity driven perspective, but there is common ground that we can find here. And I, I feel like data, what we do with the Futures Project is a really good way to bring people from different perspectives together for productive discourse. And do you find that when people have data in front of them that might upset the narratives or that they're telling, do you find that enables people to actually shift their story? I, I find that it's a helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I find it's a helpful first step to asking better questions. Okay. Data isn't always about providing the answers. Mm -hmm. It's about asking better questions. So that's where I find it to be most useful. Mm -hmm. Based on uh, the data that you've seen so far, what do what do folks in Vermont need to know about how their economy functions? Like, are there certain big blocks of economic movement? Does most of the U.S. operate one way, but we're operating another way? Like, what are some of those things that define the Vermont economy? Mm -hmm. This will likely not come as a surprise at all, <laughs> but the two major items that really stand out in the data through the work that I do with the Futures Project. If I could distill what Vermont's future depends on down to two things, it'd be people and places, right? And on the people side, we have to look at the demographic transition that's that's already underway, Vermont being the second oldest state in the country. And on the places side, big topic, Emily, you probably know this quite well, housing. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, we do have an outdoor recreation plan and a climate plan, and you're working on an economic plan, we don't have a housing plan, absurdly enough. And I, I feel like that can be part of an economic plan. Really, the people and places framework, we're talking about the supply side of what makes an economy work here in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So... Are you, have you explored, Olga, do you have a next question that you want to? No, please. Uh, okay. I imagine you've looked at sort of migration trends and I'm curious what you've seen in terms of sort of who, I know that we have seen more growth in our population than we had seen in a while. I'm curious sort of who is moving here and what kind of wealth they might be bringing or not bringing in the last few years. Sure. Yeah. In terms of um, domestic in-migration, there was certainly a spike at the beginning of the pandemic. And if we compare the data from the 2010 census to the 2020 census, Vermont grew by about 17,000 people over that decade, which may sound or feel like a lot here in Vermont, but in the grand scheme of things, 17,000 really isn't that many people. And then we saw continued growth in the early parts of the pandemic in 2021. So Vermont's population is estimated to be at about 645,000 right now. The latest American Community Survey population estimates from the Census Bureau actually show that Vermont only grew by about 92 people the last year, compared to about 4,500 the previous year. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we're continuing on this crazy growth on a linear trajectory is just false. I think we're seeing some sort of return to normal. Some of it may be the easing of the pandemic. Some of it also may be reaching capacity limits in the housing market. 
that's also putting downward pressure on on population growth. So it, to answer the second part of your question, I'm not, I, I think we can, from the housing market data, infer that many of the folks who moved here recently are of higher wealth, higher means to have been able to outcompete in a tight housing market. I don't have firm data to say sort of like Jack down the road has X number for his net worth. There's, there's no firm data to sort of confirm that down to the individual level. But if we just look at the trends in the housing market, I think we can make that inference. And then um, sort of a year by year basis, like at the futures project, what data do you have available that's useful? So like I think about the American Community Survey, the year by year data, I, in my experience in Vermont is has such wide margins of error that often it's not really very useful in Vermont. And so I'm curious like how you navigate that. And maybe that's like mm -hmm. deep geek for this early in the show will go, but no, um, no, no, no. We, our data gaps are so enormous here. And so yeah. I'm like, what is it like to like have your job be to deal with them all day? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And you point out one of the challenges of a small state with a small population, which is margin of error can be quite large. If we try to zoom into a municipality level, the data is a little bit be better at the county level. And then when we look at the state level, we can assume that the numbers are much more accurate than if we try to just zoom into a single city or, or town. So the Futures Project serves as a data aggregator of sorts. So we bring in data from the Census Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics. We use some local data sets to the Department of Labor. They're a great partner. So what we try to do in this aggregation is bring together clusters of data that tell a story. So what I mean by that is, you know, we could pick any data point and it, in some ways it almost feels like a fun fact like vermont's average commute time is about 26 minutes okay but without context what does that mean let's mm -hmm. let's talk about that in the context of of housing or climate change and transportation and emissions and now all of a sudden that data point helps to tell a story or it's it's part of a story so that's the value add of the futures project it's not just here's a number but here's what it means in context. And let's have meaningful conversations about it. Back to that point earlier about dispelling the zero-sum myth and using data to bring people together for productive discourse. I, I'm not trying to provide an answer by saying the average commute time is 26 minutes. It's what do we want to do about that? Are we okay with that? I found uh, on your website going through and, and found some information on uh, GDP uh, mm -hmm. in Vermont compared to the U.S. and and being what looked to me pretty significantly below the U.S. I also found a data point, and I don't know enough about taxes to know if this is a good, bad, or neutral, but looking at the revenue streams that we're working off of and how much of it comes from personal income rather than, say, industry or something like that, what does that tell us? Is that, like I said, good, bad, neutral? Which one do you want to talk about first? Oh, let's talk. So you about... mentioned the GDP part. And yeah, then let's start with you. GDP. And yeah. Yeah. I, I think if you look in absolute numbers, Vermont's going to be at the bottom of many lists just because of our small population. So those types of numbers, I feel like looking at it through a per capita lens is often more helpful. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to do that with most data that I look at is to 
to think through a per capita lens, or also sometimes to translate into percentages or comparisons with regional peers. So that's just sort of a, a nerdy data tidbit of data literacy is let's look at numbers in several different ways. In terms of tax- Oh, I have a question about that. So yes, regional yeah. peers, I that is always the most, I found it to be incredibly challenging topic in the context of where we are. Like our regional peer is New York. It's absurd to compare ourselves to New York, right? And then, you know, Massachusetts, like it's all, sometimes I'm like, maybe we should compare ourselves to West Virginia. Do they count as a regional peer? Like, what does it even mean mm -hmm. to compare ourselves regionally? Yeah, I, I think New Hampshire and Maine are probably the best two states to compare ourselves to. Mm -hmm. And certainly demographically, Maine is uh, pretty close to where Vermont is. Mm -hmm. If you look at age distribution, race and ethnicity. Absolutely. But New Hampshire, they like yeah. have, they're basically a Boston suburb or part of the state. The southern so part of the state yeah. is yeah. Yeah, heavily influenced yeah. by the Boston metro area economy. Yeah. Okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt, go on. <laughs> the second question, Olga, that you asked about tax revenue, I think the important thing to look at there is how has that changed over time? Do we have the sustainable tax revenue to support all of the goals that we may set as a state? What are the, the programs and initiatives that we want to fund? How does the spending help us live out our values here in Vermont? And can we can we sustain that mm -hmm. as we move forward into the future as well? So uh, I think, you know, each state sort of gets to put together its own puzzle in terms of the mix in generating those revenues, whether it's reliant more on personal income tax or corporate taxes or property taxes, you know, talking about regional peers, New Hampshire has a very different approach than Vermont. Um, but at the end of the day, both states still have bills to pay, mm -hmm. where we may have a little bit more control on a sort of year to year basis is on what should those bills be. But then when we look at the supply side, this is why I say that people is part of that framework for Vermont's economic future, is we can anticipate changes to how tax revenues can or can't be raised as as the population changes as well. You know, one reason I ask is I it always seems to me when I'm out and about wearing my reporter hat, the stories about the economy I hear the most are, um, and maybe more in the second half, we should talk about what are the stories you hear the most, mm -hmm. is, you know, our taxes are high. And, and for many people, they feel punitively high. And we have a high cost of living. I would dispute that and say, like Emily said, we have some wage issues, but I don't know how. I think it's both. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, when we think about the affordability equation, right, the cost of living and wages have to be considered together. Right. I, I could take the same amount of money that I have. I, I went on a trip to... Vietnam with some friends about six years ago, and the amount of money that I had went a lot farther in that context. So I didn't change anything in terms of the supply that I was bringing to the table, but what I was able to buy for it um, was drastically different. Um, so when we talk about 
affordability, we have to consider both cost of living and wages. It's not just one or the other. Yes. And when I think about ourselves sort of in the context of our regional peers and the fact that we are just like a tiny state in the country that controls, you know, the larger country controls the economy more than we can control it inside the state. Yes. And so like the price of goods is something we have very little control over here in Vermont, I think, compared to the control that we have over the wages here. And in the data I've seen, it looks like our wages are sort of below regional levels, but our cost of goods is fairly comparable. Mm -hmm. That's what I've said. Yeah, if we look at median wages, Vermont is, I I would call uh, Vermont behind in that regard. If we just look at a single number, median, but if we break it out by different wage brackets, there's another interesting story to tell, which is Vermont does pretty well in terms of pay equity, which is the range between lowest and highest, is much smaller than other states. So we we pay comparably higher wages to uh, folks in the labor force who may have fewer qualifications or educational attainment. So uh, folks with a high school degree or an associate's or a certificate often earn higher wages in Vermont compared to the national average, whereas it's our uh, folks with a bachelor's degree or higher who are often le- earning lower than the national average. Interesting. Uh, but if if we yeah break that out, then I, I think it is interesting and often not talked about that there is a bit of pay equity in Vermont, which you may not find elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true across our communities, which is one of the things that I think contributes to this livability paradigm that we that makes Vermont Vermont, which is that you know, our communities are economically diverse from community to community, which I think is incredibly unusual. We're just at the end of time for this first segment. So I just want to leave it with Kevin. Any Anything you tie up for listeners so far before we, we head to break? I, I'm all set for now. I'm really looking forward to the second half of this conversation. Oh, good, 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 good. Thank you. So the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return right after we hear from some underwriters. Thank you. to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser as well as Kevin Chu, who is the Executive Director of the Vermont Futures Project. We're talking all things economy right now. want to remind listeners that along with... This broadcast on WVEW on Fridays, we rebroadcast on Wednesdays mornings. Uh, Boy, that's a mouthful. And you can also find us on BCTV and many of the peg stations around Vermont. So thank you to BCTV for that. And Emily, what should we remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and guests respectively, not the station, nor their employers, friends, neighbors, pets. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Kevin, you know, our conversation in the first half really covered a lot of economic ground, but I think where it grounded itself was in that concept of 
stories and narratives and how they influence economic policy or, or our economic lives even, how we perceive our own economy. Are there stories that we need to, that you feel based on the data you see, that we need to release or that maybe aren't serving us anymore? Yeah, one that really stands out to me is around uh, the abundance or uh, lack of opportunities. And I think that has shifted over time. If we look at the ratio of job openings to job seekers, about a decade ago, there were about two job seekers for every one job. Mm -hmm. And certainly in some of my circles, I have many friends who left Vermont in pursuit of economic opportunity to find a job, perhaps in a place like Boston or or New York City. But where we are today, there's about two jobs for every one job seeker. So the ratio has, has inverted. And, and I think it's an important narrative to share with our young Vermonters in particular, that there may be opportunities here in Vermont you haven't even considered. And, and when we look at the balance of our, our workforce, labor force participation and anticipated trends based on demographic transitions, retention of young talent is certainly an important part of what we need to do to make Vermont successful moving forward. So dispelling that idea that you have to leave Vermont to, to find a job or a high paying job, we really need to do a better job highlighting what's available here. So what is available here? So I, I like, you know, I read the statistics. I've certainly like been part of so many conversations about workforce shortages and doing something about our workforce shortage and all the opportunities. And then I go looking for a job and the two seem to not connect. So where are those opportunities? What are they? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we could pull up the Vermont Department of Labor website. They have a, a jobs listing board. We can call up employers around the state. Uh, there are, uh, in my mind, what I, I think you touched on there, Emily, might not necessarily be the uh, av availability of jobs versus the job seekers, but there's a connection point in between, which is how do the job seekers find the available jobs? And this is a space where technology has certainly changed that dynamic over the last decade, two decades. It's no longer you walk into an office building with a paper resume and you hand it to someone because you saw a listing in the local newspaper. That may still happen. I think that, you know, if I were to look up job listing websites, even on just page one of Google, I'd see a ton of different options. So uh, in some ways, what I'm getting at is, are we equipping people in our communities to find the available jobs as best as possible? Or can we do a little bit more in terms of that, that piece of telling the stories and being able to get the right information to the right people at the right time? Hmm. So I... From a data perspective, if we just look at the unemployment numbers and then the, the job opening numbers, then we see why, why aren't we filling those jobs and how come we can't can't get more people the the conversion piece i think is what's missing right mm -hmm. and, and that may be a communication issue more than an availability issue has your organization kevin done any work around you know that that conversion you're talking about looking at skill sets and and seeing 
what skills people have. I mean, maybe they don't, the skills don't fit the jobs. Like where have you seen any clear disconnects between open jobs and job seekers? Yes, to an extent. So I, I don't know the personal qualifications of all the job seekers in Vermont. Sorry, oh, I'm, I'm not on. that good. <laughs> <laughs> but what we can do looking at macro level trends across Vermont is that about 30% of the jobs in Vermont require a bachelor's degree or higher, mm-hmm. which it, that's also an important part of the economic story that we need to tell as well. So when People ask, like, why why can't we just retain all of the college graduates? Well, maybe that uh, it's because the opportunities that they're seeking actually aren't are not here. Mm-hmm. And if you compare Ber- uh, Vermont's numbers to a place like Boston or D.C., uh, those metro markets, um, about 40, 42% of the jobs in those markets require bachelors or higher. So... Vermont isn't, I I don't think if you look at what's available here versus a place like Boston or DC, that's not our reality. But then that other 70%, how do we, how do we meet the needs of the employers that are hiring in that other 70%? And how do we make sure that the people in our communities that have the qualifications and have the interest in those opportunities can find them? Thank you. How about you, Emily? Housing and workforce is something that I think the legislature has been looking at. Mm -hmm. What is this bringing up for you? That there's still like these sort of disconnects in the ether of the conversation. Mm -hmm. You're never quite sure which problem I think we're trying to solve. So there's sort of the rural job versus the Chittenden County job, which becomes a big issue in the context of, say, Wyndham County. Mm-hmm. Are we thinking in terms of sort of like the whole labor shed that includes New Hampshire and Massachusetts? How does education connect with this in the context of sort of like, you know, UVM's incredibly expensive. I'm feeling ultra sensitive about that right now, but UVM's incredibly expensive. And how does that line up with sort of those bachelor's level jobs that are being offered? And then I think we also aren't ever clear on what our leverage points are in state government. Mm. So we do have the power to set wages in certain ways, right? Like we can set minimum wage, fairly straightforward. Mm -hmm. There's lots of knock-on effects of that, but we, you know, that's like a policy tool we are familiar with. We also set wages in terms of the contracts that we use and, you know, Vermont has a huge number of jobs, like a huge proportion of our jobs are connected to state dollars in one way or another, whether that is through like grants and contracts or through direct employees of the state. I don't think we think about that leverage as explicitly as we could Mm. in terms of quality jobs, in terms of recruiting jobs. And then I think one piece of the whole puzzle that could use some digging is whose responsibility is it to educate the workforce? And how much education does that workforce need? So our employers, again, mostly small businesses with no HR departments, are those businesses able to hire folks who might have the soft skills, but not the hard skills? Are they willing to hire people with the hard skills, but not the soft skills? If so, whose responsibility is it to do something about that? And I think we're sort of like constantly talking around that question, but not quite diving into that question as deeply as we could. 
So we add these sort of training programs upon training programs and all of these funny places that don't Mm -hmm. necessarily coordinate with each other very well. And there's class implications to each of those places, each of those types of training that might not line up with the employers that we're connecting with. I'd like to build off of that actually by taking a step back because I feel like the conversation so far over the last few minutes is focused on efficiency and conversion. And can we make sure that the people that need to get connected to opportunities actually do and have the right qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. There's also the supply part of the conversation as well, back to that people framework and the idea that maybe Vermont needs more people. Prior to the pandemic, there was not a single month over the last 20 years in which Vermont had more than 20,000 open jobs. Hmm. For the past about 16 months, we've been above 20,000 open jobs. So a very different labor market reality now versus the previous 20 years. And if we take a look at sort of the the homegrown supply, who are the the kids in our K-12 system, we've seen a drop by about 20,000. So 20 years ago, the K-12 enrollment was about 100,000 students, and today it's about 80,000, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The graduating class in 12th grade this year in Vermont is only about 5,300 12th graders. Mm-hmm. So even if we kept 100% of our 12th graders in the state and they went directly into the Vermont workforce, we'd still have workforce shortages. So it's an unbalanced equation where we can come up with the best training programs in the world, but if we fundamentally have a supply issue, we're still not going to be able to balance this equation. So it's a yes and conversation. We we want to be as efficient as possible with who we have. And, and at the end of the day, we're talking about people here, right? When I say workforce, it's, it's people um, and making sure that there are pathways so that people can get involved in work that is meaningful and sustains who they are and who they want to be. But at the same time, we also have to take that step back and look at the the big picture equation and understand that we may not have enough people. Well, so that's another question I have is when we have these conversations about not enough people, and then we go searching for people, maybe it's a question of how can we support Vermont businesses to be shifting their business models to both account for sort of, you know, I've talked to a lot of Vermont businesses about a need to shift to a less stable supply chain and what that looks like, but also to shift to a more flexible labor market, right? To think about sort of more part-time employees or less people doing the work. And like, what does that actually even look like? And is there a way to do that so that people's wages could go up in the mean, you know, in the middle of it? Like, Someone works 30 hours a week and makes as much as they did when, you know, in a full-time job. Like, is that a possibility? Would that bring more people in? Would that make the labor force and the needs match up better? I don't know. Yeah, that was one thing. There was a lot of talk in the news cycle about a study that was done in the UK where a lot of places went to three or four days a week. But what was key to that is people did not take a cut in pay. They were still getting the benefits and the and the salary of the full-time job. And I don't know if like, I mean, that's great for the people who are doing the work. I don't know if that actually, you know, if there's a system where that could actually equate to the kind of profits that businesses or the kind of production that a business would need in order to sustain that. 
Yeah, productivity is a big part of that equation and making it work. And I can't answer on behalf of the businesses here in Vermont. But I, I think that, you know, fundamentally with the impacts of COVID, the work relationship to work has shifted with the rise of things like remote work and the flexible arrangements that we saw were possible in the past couple of years. I think it's something that um, a lot of Vermont businesses are thinking about and considering how can they position position themselves to be competitive in this evolving economy moving forward. There isn't that intrinsic link between the place of residence and the location of work that was so strong just five, 10 years ago. In uh, that means there's opportunity, but it also means that there's some challenges, right? We We could hire talent that's living on the West Coast, but it also means that companies all over the country can hire talent on the West Coast. So even though the pool has grown, the number of people that are trying to compete for the top talent in that broader labor pool, enabled by technological shifts, it's it's a very competitive field as well. And there are many jobs in the Vermont economy that still need to be in person, right? Our teachers in our schools, our nurses in the healthcare system. And I, I don't think we would be able to pitch the idea that we move to a three-day school week <laughs> or that we only provide care in the hospital three or four days a week. So it, no, it's, or that again, restaurants yes, are only and, open three days a week, right? Like yeah. we have this heavily tourism dependent economy, which is almost all in-person labor, right? Mm-hmm. So there, yes, the experiment in the UK that may have worked for a subset of companies doing very specific tasks may have worked well for them, but I don't think we can extrapolate and just and say that we can copy that model here in Vermont. We have to adapt what what we've learned from other areas to a Vermont context. Mm-hmm. You've touched on housing a couple times, Kevin, and I think on I saw on your website that the Vermont Futures Project would be releasing some recommendations around housing at some point. Is that still a a plan or is that forthcoming still? So the work of VHFA and setting a target for Vermont Futures Project is a a strong supporter of our partners at VHFA. And uh, again, back to that framework of people and places, right? When we talk about houses, it's because there's a need from people that are already here in our communities for for more options for a place to call home. I think I saw that Vermont has the second highest homeless population in the country. So how do we meet their needs? We also, again, back to that aging population data point, we know that it's difficult for people to move out of a home that may be too large for their current needs because there's nothing to move into. One of the data points that has really stood out to me when looking at housing and households is that household size has decreased over time. And that in itself puts pressure on a housing market, even when population and housing stock stays the same. Mm-hmm. So for, for example, if you had a family of four 20 years ago, they purchased a home that was the right size for two adults and two kids. Now, 20 years later, those kids are grown up, they've moved out. So you have two occupants in a home that is too large for their current needs. And then if we want to make it possible for those kids to stay in our communities and find a future here, they also need a place to live. 
Right. So that decreasing household size has ha had an impact. And, and if the housing stock hasn't responded to household size changes, then of course we're going to see pressures. And it was really, you know, we did all of this housing zoning reform this year in the legislature, S100, which we've talked about on a previous show. But it was really remarkable to see the pushback on even just the move from single family homes to permitting duplexes. Mm which visually is identical. I mean, maybe some people, mm -hmm. like when they imagine a duplex, they imagine like a very specific type of architecture, but a duplex can be anything. Mm -hmm. And it was really like, it was a very extraordinary, like even that sh single shift in how we think about housing and how we think about capacity for housing was really like a tough sell for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think this comes back to narratives. Right. Yeah. Uh, what do we value and accept as representing the I'm going to use what I consider a swear word, even though Olga told me not to use <laughs> swear words, the character, the C word, um, <laughs> the character of our communities. Like who gets to define what that is? Mm -hmm. When I hear conservation and preservation, I always ask of what and for whom? And this is coming from someone, I, I was an environmental studies major at Middlebury, by the way, so I, I have the environmental perspective. I, I feel like when we talk about the, the physical aesthetic of our communities, it's being narrowly defined in an, a very exclusive way. I want to rewind all the way back to a term that came up earlier in this conversation, which is new Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm always wondering, coming from an immigrant family, when do we stop becoming, uh, when are, do we stop being new and just become Americans, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there are narratives of exclusivity, whether intentional or unintentional, that are just as big of a barrier to the growth and development of our communities mm -hmm. as any policy that we talk about. Agreed. And I think Vermont values is another. I actually thought you were going to say Vermont values when you were adding <laughs> yeah. that preface yeah. about not swearing. I think that's another one of them that always, you know, it's just like, and people use it not realizing, or at least I see people regularly using it, not realizing just like how intensely excluding that frame is for mm -hmm. so many people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What, even the use of what term other than what term do you? Do you prefer to new Americans? American. American. <laughs> okay. A Vermonter. I, I am very intentional about showing up to spaces and calling myself a Vermonter. Yes. I know I there are too. very, yes. yeah, um, there's a wide spectrum of definitions of who gets to call themselves a Vermonter. My, feel, my feeling on that is anyone who wants to live here and contribute meaningfully to our communities mm -hmm. uh, should be able to, if they want to, call themselves a Vermonter and hold that as one of their many identities. Yes. And I'll tell you, as a politician who was not born here and who talks with my hands a lot, <laughs> it is a wild thing to show up places and call myself a Vermonter. You're like doing I can it. Right. I can see I keep on doing it, but I see the visceral reaction and I'm white. Like it's just a wild, it's a wild journey that we're all on here. Um mm -hmm. to try to figure out who we are. You've mentioned the the talking with your hands mm -hmm. uh, more than once, Emily. At some point you're gonna have to unpack that for me because oh, it's just like a hands. It's just like a very ethnic thing to do that I think people find really alienating here. 
it's just like too it's just like too loud too much it's just like part of like the general like non-white puritan new england thing of being too much like whatever i do is too much mm-hmm. um and i think that's true for a lot of people who weren't sort of didn't grow up in that like tight euro waspy thing mm-hmm. thank you i, I, I want to come back to the intersection yeah. of data and narratives the it's vermont all- futures project <laughs> <laughs> we put a question in the vermonter poll last year asking are you supportive of growing Vermont's population size to strengthen its workforce? The, the Vermonter poll is uh, a survey run out of UVM, and it's a representative sample of Vermonters that respond. So what I found interesting was that idea of growing Vermont's population size. 49% of Vermonters said yes, they're supportive. 38% said no, mm-hmm. and 13% were unsure. And when we unpack that by age brackets, I want to ask the two of you, do you think that younger Vermonters are more or less supportive of growing Vermont's population size? More. Yeah, that would be my gut reaction too, I think. I went in thinking the same thing, but it was the exact opposite. So yeah, the youngest respondents said no at a rate of 61%, yes at 36, and they were only 3% unsure. So the young respondents were were very sure in their answers. And on the other end of the spectrum, the 75 plus um, respondents, so they said yes at a rate of 59%, no at a rate of 21%, and 20% were unsure. I'm curious what would happen. So I feel very clear personally that I'm supportive of growing Vermont's population. When I add that second half of your sentence, that second clause, all of a sudden I'm not sure. Hmm. Because it's just sort of like the idea of equating humans with workforce as like a one-to-one. I would, and I always overthink survey questions. I'm like, just survey <laughs> name it, right? But I I would I would pause to answer that question because I would, you know, like people aren't profit and like I would get sort of lost in your framing. And so I and I don't know if some of it, you know. Probably most survey takers aren't as obsessive about their questions as I am, but (laughs) I wonder if that's sort of part of what was happening there. I don't know. Yeah, I I just find it very interesting, though, that most Vermonters, if if we take a look at those breakdowns, 49% yes, 38% no, 13% unsure. Uh, There are more people that say yes than no. And is that a story that we're telling in our communities? I, I certainly hear the no voice quite loudly mm-hmm. quite often. I think there it's easier to say no. Um, there are mechanisms in place that make it easier to say no than it is to say yes. And how does all this sort of relate back to some of the economic realities that we're seeing? Perhaps that young Vermonters are saying no at a higher rate because when they hear population growth, they may see that as competition in a tight housing market. Older Vermonters are more likely to own their home and be insulated from those pressures. Whereas younger Vermonters, they're like, oh no, my rent's going to go up or I want to buy a home, but I can't because more people will be here. And we we need to bring it back to that framework of both people and places together. Mm -hmm. Thank you. On that note, we are out of time. 
on the Montpelier Happy Hour. But I want to thank Kevin Chu from the Vermont Futures Project for joining us today. It's been a really great conversation. Kevin, quickly, anything you want to leave listeners with before we head out? If you're interested in the work of the Vermont Futures Project, you can check out our website at vtfuturesproject.org. If you want to get in touch with me, um, it's just kchu at vtfuturesproject.org. We're working to answer our mission question by putting together an economic action plan. And I've always approached the work by saying I'm not smart enough to write a plan on my own, nor am I stupid enough to try. So if you'd like to contribute, whether it's content um, as a donor supporter of the Futures Project, um, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Emily, if folks want to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll get links to all my social media, my email address, phone number, all the things, and should be putting out an end of session report any day now once I catch up with myself. Wonderful. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, and we will see you next week. Take care, everyone.